Well, amen. Welcome to Summit Church at all of our campus locations here in the Triangle. If you got your Bibles this weekend, and I hope that you brought them, if you will open them to Romans chapter 3, or if you brought your Romans journal, and I hope that you continue to bring that week by week, you can open to page 28 where you will find the text of Scripture and a place for you to take notes. And uh, if you have the official CSB study Bible I'm preaching from, it's on page 1153, if that's helpful for you at all. Uh, that's where you can find Romans chapter 3. One of the things that I, I think I most enjoy about parenting uh, now that I've done it here for, I guess, what, 15 years, um, is that I'm getting, uh, my kids are getting aware of how to anticipate the objections they know that I'm, I'm going to have to whatever request they're making of me. So they go ahead and include the answers to those objections in the original request. And so they'll be like, you know, dad, I want to go to a, a friend's house. And I know, I know I've been a jerk to my siblings all day long. So I just went up there and reorganized my sister's closet and put all her, her shoes in alphabetical order. And I know, I know you're going to say something about my homework, but dad, I've already set my alarm for 4 a.m. tomorrow morning to make sure that I get up in enough time to finish it up before school. Um, they anticipate the objections and they raise them and then they deal with them. What you see the Apostle Paul doing in uh, the book of Romans is laying out his case for why the gospel. And Paul's been doing this for about two decades at this point in his life. And so he's very aware of the objections that people are going to raise to the gospel. And so along the way, he will raise the objection, he will voice it, and then he will spend some time addressing it. He begins in chapter one by showing that all mankind, all mankind has a problem. That is a deep inner rebellion that corrupts every one of our relationships. When he goes into chapter two, he anticipates an objection that's going to be raised by religious people, particularly religious Jews. He knows that they're going to say, well, yeah, Paul, of course, man, those Gentiles, that just means people who aren't Jews, those pagans, man, there's some really messed up people. That is for sure, but not us. No, we were raised on the Bible. We were raised on religion. We got the word of God. We've got the heroes of the faith. We've got the temple. We're different. So Paul takes an entire chapter, Romans chapter two, to try to show that religion doesn't really remedy our problem. In fact, in many ways, religion just makes our problem worse. Now, I know that a lot of times people get confused when they hear a, a church leader, whether it's the Apostle Paul or whether it's somebody like me, they get confused when they hear us rail on religion. And they say, well, wait a minute, isn't Christianity a religion? Isn't yours a religious job? Is it going to church by definition a religious activity? And of course, the answer to all those questions are yes. And so they say, well, why are you hating on religion so bad? It is because, and this is crucial, crucial for you to understand, it is because Paul draws a distinction, a very important distinction in Romans between religion and the gospel. Let me introduce you to a chart that should have been there on your seat when you came in at your campus. Um, I had a little fight with the production team this week because I wanted to get this printed for you and give it to all of you. And they informed me that we had already way overspent our budget in just producing the Romans journal. Um, and I told them that you were worth the extra expense to get this copy for you. And so you can see who prevailed. And so it's there uh, on your seat. And so make sure you enjoy this because it really did cost me a lot of capital with them. Um, but it is a chart that will go through the difference between religion and the gospel. Um, this is a chart that originally most of the stuff comes from a guy named Tim Keller, but I think it's really helpful in understanding what Romans is trying to teach you. He's trying to teach you that there is the gospel, which is the power of God. And then there's this man-made substitute for it, and they're not the same thing. 
Okay, so let's just walk through this. By the way, let me give you a little heads up. Some of this might be a tad bit dense and you might be like, oh, I need to think about that one for a while. That's why I'm giving it to you to take home. Okay, so for right now, it, you just, I just wanna walk you through it. Later this week, you can have it, you can meditate on it until you, you understand it, okay? Religion, religion operates off this premise. I obey. I obey, therefore I'll be accepted. If I obey well enough, if I keep the precepts, whatever religion you're talking about, I obey and because I obey enough, I will be accepted. The gospel flips that on his head. The gospel is the only religious message in the world that operates by saying, no, 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 you're accepted. You're accepted by a gift of God's grace. And in response to that, you obey. You don't obey in order to be accepted. You obey with grateful joy because you have been accepted, which is the second thing. In religion, motivation is based on fear and insecurity. I've got to do more so that God will bless me. I've got to do more so that God will let me into heaven. I got to do more so I'll be a good Christian. But in the gospel, motivation is based on grateful joy. I obey because God has made me this and because I love him and I want to please him. It's totally different. In religion, I obey God in order to get things from God. If I do enough, he'll give me blessing. But with the gospel, I obey God to get God, to delight in God. And because I, I just wanna resemble him and I wanna, I wanna live my life as a loving response to him. In religion, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I get angry at God or myself since I believe like Job's friends, that anybody who is good deserves a comfortable life. So when things go wrong, I'm like, well, God, what's wrong with you? Or maybe what's wrong with me? But see with the gospel, when circumstances in my life go wrong, yeah, I struggle. I mean, nobody wants stuff in their life to go wrong, right? I, I, I struggle, but I know that all my punishment fell on Jesus. So I know that whatever's happening in my life, it's not because God has paid me back for anything because God paid Jesus back for everything in my life. And that while he may allow this suffering for my training, he will exercise his fatherly love within my trial and goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and all things are working together for good. That's the difference. In religion, when I'm criticized, when I'm criticized, you get criticized sometimes, right? I never get criticized, but for those of you that do get criticized, when I get criticized, if you're a religious person, you get furious or you get devastated because it is critical. You see, it's critical in your identity that you think of yourself as a good person. Threats to your self-image must be destroyed at all costs because you've built your identity on being seen as good. With the gospel, however, when I'm criticized, yeah, I struggle. Nobody likes to be criticized, okay? But it's not critical for me to think of myself as a good person because my identity is not built on my record. It's not built on my performance, but it's built on God's love for me in Christ. Therefore, I can take criticism. I have the absolute approval of the only one whose opinion really matters anyway. And so I can handle criticism from you because I've got assurance in him. With religion, my prayer life consists largely of petition. Give me, give me, give me, give me. God, I need this and God, give me that. And it only heats up when I'm in a time of need. That's when you really start praying, when you really got something you need from God. My main purpose in prayer is to try to control my environment, make it work out the way that I need it to. But see, with the gospel, my prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration because my main purpose in prayer is not just to get something from God. My main purpose in prayer is to spend time with God because I love him. In religion, in religion, my self-view swings between two poles. If and when I'm living up to my standards, I feel confident. But then I'm also prone to be proud and unsympathetic to failing people. Why can't they be awesome like me? If and when I'm not living up to my standards, however, that's when I start to feel insecure and inadequate. That's the other pole. I'm not confident. I feel like a failure. But see, with the gospel, 
My self-view is not based on my view of myself as a moral achiever. In Christ, I am simul justus et peccator. And I know if you haven't boned up on your Latin recently, you don't understand what that means. It is simultaneously, I am a sinner, but I'm also accepted in Christ. I am righteous at the same time. And I'm sinful, but God has declared me righteous. I am so bad. I realize that Jesus had to die to save me, but I'm also so loved that he was glad to die to save me. That leads me to deeper and deeper humility and confidence at the same time. Those are two qualities that never go together anywhere else except for the gospel. Deep humility and deep confidence. Usually they're kind of at odds. But in Christ, I'm humble and confident at the same time. I'm neither swaggering nor sniveling. In religion, my identity and my self-worth are based on mainly how hard I work or how moral I am. And so I got to look down on those I perceive as lazy or immoral. I disdain and feel superior to the other, whether that's the other religious or the other race or the other political party. I just feel like the other is not as good as me. The gospel means that my identity and my self-worth are centered on the one who died for his enemies, who was excluded from the city, the community for me. I'm saved by sheer grace. So I can't look down on those who believe or practice something different from me because I was the outsider when Jesus saved me. Only by grace, you see, I am what I am. I have no inner need to win arguments. With religion, since I look to my own pedigree or performance for my spiritual acceptability, then my heart manufactures idols. It might be my talents, my moral record, or my personal discipline, my social status, whatever. I absolutely have to have these things because they serve as my main hope. They serve as my main meaning, my happiness, my security, my significance. Whatever else I may say I believe about God, these are the things that I got to have. And these are the things that I pursue with the gospel. Well, yeah, I got many good things in my life. I love my family. I love my job. I have spiritual disciplines I work on, but none of those good things are ultimate things to me. They're good things, but they're not God things. None of them are things I absolutely have to have. So see, there's a limit. There's a limit to how much anxiety, how much bitterness, how much despondency, despair that they can inflict on me when they are threatened or they are lost. That is the difference between religion and the gospel. The gospel, Paul says, which is the message that because you could not save yourself, God sent Jesus to die in your place and save you. That is the power of God unto salvation. Religion, on the other hand, is a man-made substitute that stands in the way. And rather than remedying the problem of our sin, it actually makes it worse. You see, the core of our sin is this sense of pride, rebellion, and independence from God. That's the core of our sin, pride, rebellion, and independence from God. Religion caters to those things. And if anything, it just makes those things worse. So now as we round the corner to come into chapter three, Paul hears in his head another objection raised by his Jewish readers. So what he does in chapter three is he stages a mock argument where he plays both sides of the argument. And he says, well, here's what the Jewish person would say, the religious person, and then here's how I respond. This mock argument, he pictures the Jews standing there with their Hebrew Bibles open saying, well, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Paul, are you saying that all this is worthless? I mean, wasn't this book, wasn't it inspired by God? How could it be worthless if it was inspired by God? Are you saying that all those stories about Abraham and about Moses and Daniel and David and Queen Esther, they were all of no benefit and that we should unhitch ourselves from these stories or the way we might say it today? You might say to me, well, wait a minute, JD, are you telling me that growing up in church was no advantage? 
You're telling me that teaching my kids to be religious, maybe even paying thousands of dollars for them to go to a Christian school, you're saying that that's all worthless, maybe even harmful to them? By the way, the fact that you and I feel ourselves having this objection shows that we are reading the Apostle Paul correctly. I've noticed a lot of people seem to try to soften up what Paul is saying throughout Romans. Like, well, you know, Paul doesn't think that religion is actually that bad. But Paul intends to make his case against religion so strongly that he brings you to this question, which is why he has to stop to deal with it. So the fact that you and I have this objection too, you're like, well, we must be reading it right. Does religion have any value? Religion, what is it good for, right? Is it absolutely nothing? What is it good for? That's Paul's question, Romans 3, verse 1. So what advantage? What advantage does the Jew, the religious person, what do they have? What is the benefit of circumcision? Oh, Paul's answer? Well, considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. It is true. God himself inspired this book, these stories, word for word. But their purpose, and this is key, their purpose was to point Israel and us to our need for Jesus, not to equip us with some strategy or technique that would remove our need for him. All the things that God gave to us, all the stories, all the rituals, they were designed not to give you something to master by which you could earn your place before God. They were designed to bring you to the place where you would cry out, I have no hope of ever being accepted by God and restored to you apart from your grace. In other words, the rituals were not to drive you up with pride in your accomplishment. They were designed to drive you down with humility, aware of your need. But verse three, Paul imagines the Jewish religious person saying in response, but Paul, if the law was supposed to lead us to Jesus, well, then hadn't God failed? Because so many Jews have, have not believed the gospel. Paul's response, verse four, absolutely not. Even though Israel in large part has failed to believe, God has still kept his promise to bring salvation. In fact, God took Israel's unbelief and has turned that into an opportunity for Gentile salvation. Because the Jews in large part walked away, that created this open space for Gentiles, non-Jews, people like you and me mostly, um, to be able to come into this and to experience salvation. So what Paul says, verse three, is God took Israel's unfaithfulness and used it as a way to show even greater faithfulness on his part. Well, then the, the religious person responds in verse five, if Israel's rebellion led to Gentile salvation, and that was all a part of God's great plan, how can God still be angry at the Jews? Weren't the Jews just playing their part? Paul's answer, verses six and seven, that's a stupid objection because God will judge each person for their own unbelief and rebellion. How God's sovereignty works through human choices to accomplish his purposes is indeed a mystery. It is. But the fact that it's a mystery does not remove the fact that God will always hold us each accountable for our own choices. Well, you get that, right? I mean, I, sovereignty is a mystery, but, but you get that, that even in the midst of sovereignty that we're responsible. Um, I was traveling back um, uh, on a trip I was on trying to get back. I'm supposed to be back in plenty of time because I had to speak at NC State, North Carolina State, to about 2,000 students that night. Um, and so I had plenty of time in my travel schedule, um, but my airline Delta, which I think is one of the better airlines for whatever it's worth, um, my airline, you know, I was riding through Atlanta because that's always where you go. And uh, Atlanta is where all my dreams and hopes go to die, um, the, that airport. And so I'm there and we're pulling out, it's looking good. We're on the tarmac, we're in line when the, the pilot comes on and says, you know, there's something 
wrong with the plane. It, I remember it being relatively minor in my mind, something like the toilet not being able to flush correctly or something like that. Um, we, I mean, we could get there. We could still get there. It was like a 44-minute flight or something. And so he's like, he's like, but we have to get it fixed until, you know, we can't take off until it's fixed. And evidently, the only tool that can fix this problem is located in Madagascar, and they're going to have to send a plane over to get it, and we're just going to have to pull off the side of the tarmac and wait till they get there with the tool to fix this thing. I've exaggerated that last part, but that's what it felt like, because we had to pull over for, I mean, it was probably two, three hours that we just sat there waiting on some tool to come and fix this little part of our plane. Well, I, 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 you know, eventually I figured out I was not going to be able to make it back on time, so I called up a friend, and I was like, hey, I'm not going to be able, I'm not going to it's not going to be there tonight. There's 2,000 students that are going to be in this place and somebody's got to speak to them. Can you pinch hit for me? Well, my friend was able to do it. He goes in. Um, the reports I get back is he just did an unbelievable job. Um, just uh, preached a great message. I, I, I remember like you know, hearing about people coming to faith in Christ that night. They ended up hearing a much better sermon than had I actually made it back. So now in retrospect, it seems apparent to me that God was sovereign in having my plane get delayed so that my friend could preach a better message for me. And I recognize God's sovereignty, but does that remove Delta's responsibility in the debacle? Should that repair guy who was apparently taking a three-hour nap and ignoring all of his text messages, should he suddenly declare himself some sort of spiritual hero for making this happen? No, I can still be frustrated at Delta, which is again, among the better of the airlines in my opinion. I can still be frustrated at the inefficiency of their repair process. In other words, I can say God is sovereign, but Delta is still responsible. Amen? That's what Paul says here. But more on that in chapter nine. This little section is just supposed to be an appetizer of what he's gonna spend like three whole chapters getting into uh, in, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, okay? So Paul ends this little imaginary Q&A. He ends this little imaginary Q&A with his fellow Jews by concluding verse nine, what then? What then are we, are we, are we Jews who have the law? Are we really any better off in our hearts than Gentile sinners? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are both under sin, Romans 1 and Romans 2, as it is written. Now, what Paul does next is he compiles a list of quotes from Old Testament Hebrew scripture sources that talk about the depravity of man. And the reason he puts them all as quotes from the Hebrew Bible is he's trying to show these religious Jews that this is not some new teaching he's introducing, that the law and the prophets the whole time have been trying to point out that man has a need that religion cannot fix and it's only God himself who can fix it. So he begins this list of quotes by quoting from Psalm 53, there is no one righteous, not even one. Righteousness here refers to our legal standing before God. Sin, he says, has ruined everybody's legal standing before God. When everything is known about who we are, not a single one of us is gonna be in a good place. That includes the most righteous people who have ever lived in our, in our minds. Moses, Abraham, Daniel, Esther, Job, Billy Graham, your grandmother, Mother Teresa, whoever it is in your book, whoever is the most righteous person, when all the secrets are exposed, there's nobody that is gonna stand before God and be righteous. Just think about it, right? I mean, what's it gonna be like when all of your thoughts are displayed and all the secrets of your life are known? I mean, how would you like it now if there was a little monitor on the side of your head that just put into text form everything that you were thinking at any given moment? 
right? What would that be like if people knew what was in your mind? What's it going to be like when all those thoughts get exposed? He said, that's what's coming. The day's coming when all these secrets are exposed. I had a, a friend, um, his name was Daniel. And when he was in the seventh grade, he said, you know, he said, my, I was a part of a big family. We had like six kids in the family. So, you know, it was eight people in my family. We go to the, um, Olin Mills. You remember back when you used to get family pictures of Olin Mills? Um, they always said you wear the same sweater and you'd lean on each other and stuff. But we didn't, we didn't have like digital pictures back then. So you didn't take like a thousand, you took a limited number. He said, so um, he said, right before the photographer would snap, you know, the picture, he said, every single time, every single time at the last second, I would make some, you know, some kind of goofy face or I'd look up in the distance or I'd put bunny ears or something. He said, because we had so many kids, he couldn't, you know, he wasn't noticing every time I did that. He said, I just thought that was so funny. He said, six weeks later, when the proofs come back and my mom goes in to look at them and realizes that this $100 photo session that I've ruined every single one of them. He said, you know, when you're in seventh grade, you think about things being funny now. You don't think about what they're going to be like in six weeks when everything gets exposed. What Paul is, is alluding to here is there's a day when that kind of moment happens where all the things that we thought were done in secret are fully told and fully exposed. And on that day, nobody's going to stand there and say that they are righteous. There is no one righteous, no one who has ever been born in the world except for Jesus Christ. Nobody has ever been righteous, not even one. There is nobody, he says, verse 11, who understands Sin has corrupted our minds. We saw this in chapter one. Our self-centered hearts warp our ability even to perceive the things of God. I've told you before, think of it like the bigot whose prejudice against a certain group of people causes him to look at every single member of that group in a distorted way. He can't see the virtues. He can't see certain people for who they are because he's so bigoted against this whole group of people. In the same way, our sin makes us distort and corrupt the truth about God. One of postmodern philosophy's biggest contributions to modern thought was its recognition that so much of what we perceive, so much of what we perceive is determined by the shape and the biases of our heart. That's why two people can look at exactly the same set of evidence and come to two entirely different conclusions based on the biases they bring to it. I mean, you can see this every single night, right? By just flipping on MSNBC or CNN and, and Fox News. You got the same set of evidence and you got people on one side losing their mind in one direction and you got the same set of evidence, people losing their mind the other direction. How you interpret the evidence has more to do with the state of your heart than it does the actual um, content of the evidence. Uh, one of the postmodern philosophers named William James wrote this essay called The Will to Believe. And what he said, he said, is, is that ultimately what we believe is less determined by the evidence and it's determined by what we want to believe. What we will to believe determines what we actually believe. Now, postmodern philosophy patted themselves on the back for this great discovery about human nature. Romans 1 has been saying that from the beginning, right? What we see about God is more determined by the shape of our hearts than it is the evidence for God. It's not that our ignorance of God gives us hardness of heart. It's that our hardness of heart makes us ignorant of God. Sin warps our minds so that we are unable, naturally speaking, even to understand the things of God. And because of this, he says, there is no one who seeks God. Nobody has ever sought God. Nobody, naturally speaking, even wants to know the true God. We all run from him. Now, at this point, at this point, I can hear what you're saying. You're like, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Surely Paul goes too far here. Nobody seeks God. I mean, I know people who aren't even Christians and they don't go to church, yet they are sincerely searching for the truth. And what about people from other religions? I mean, I know some very sincere Muslims who are really passionate about knowing God. 
Paul is not saying that no one ever seeks spiritual things or that nobody wants to connect to the supernatural. What he is saying is that nobody prompted by their own volition, their own decision, acting on their own ability, nobody wants to truly find God, at least not the true version of him. People may seek God to get blessings from him. They may, they may seek a reshaped God who conforms to their needs, their prejudices, and who serves their agendas, but that is different than seeking the true God for his own sake. You see, apart from his regenerating grace, I've heard it said, we flee from God even as we seek God. We may be seeking to know God, but our hearts are fleeing from his glory and his control. By the way, what that means, listen, is that anybody here this weekend who is truly seeking God is doing so because you are being sought by him. And that's good news. John 6, Jesus said, nobody comes to me unless the father draws him. Which means that if you are being drawn to Jesus and you want to know Jesus and there's a desire in your heart to know him, that desire is not from you. That's a desire from your heavenly father who is drawing you. That's the only reason you would be here. Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in us both to will, to desire, and to do of his good pleasure. 1 Corinthians 12.3, nobody can come to the conviction that Jesus is Lord apart from the help of the Holy Spirit, which means that if you're being drawn to Jesus and you want to know him and you're becoming convinced he's Lord, that's because he's put it in your heart. And that's because he's after you. And that's why he brought you here. That's why he introduced you to that person, put you through that situation. You see, even as I'm saying this, it's making sense to some of you. You're like, you're like well, that's where these questions come from. And that's why these troubles have been happening. And that's where all this stuff that seemed random to me, God has been drawing me. He's drawing you. That's what you learn from that. Apart from his special regenerating grace, all have turned away. All alike have become worthless. This, which again is a quote from both Isaiah 53 and Psalm 53, is the essence of sin. We've all turned away from God's truth and each of us has sought our own way because we all preferred our way to God's. Listen to me. There is one central lie, one central lie that has propelled our rebellion since the Garden of Eden. One suspicion, one doubt born in unbelief that has led to all the disaster of the human race. It is the lie that echoes in the heart of every teenager, the heart of every college student, the heart of every young adult. And that lie goes like this. I think my way is probably better than God's. I know that he created everything. I know that he's God. But when it comes to making decisions for my life, what's best for my life, I think I'm probably smarter than him. And I think my way is probably better. That same lie continues to echo in the hearts of businessmen and women in their quest for ambition. It echoes in the hearts of husbands who are dissatisfied with their marriages. It echoes in the hearts of, of empty nesters who are trying to decide what to do with this next chapter of their lives. It, it resounds in the hearts of educators and homeschoolers and CEOs and retirees. And that lie is simply, my way is probably better than God's when it comes to choices for my life. Paul says, there's nobody. There's no one who does what is good, not even one. Now, Again, you're like, wait a minute, surely, Paul, this is an overstatement. Nobody does what is good. I mean, what about the Marine who is not a Christian, who doesn't believe in God, but throws himself on a grenade to save his buddy? I mean, he's not a Christian, but that's still a good deed, isn't it? Or how about the woman who sacrifices everything to get her kids out of poverty? And she works three jobs and just scrapes by so that she can give her kids a shot at a life that she never had a shot at. Aren't those genuinely good things? Well, yes, they are, but two things you gotta consider here. First, 
The Bible only considers a deed good if it is pure, not just in, in form, but also in motive. I've, I've shown you that if we do good deeds to try to bolster our self-image or reputation, or we try to do our good deeds to earn blessing from God, then even if our deeds are good on the surface, they're not really good because they're inherently selfish, right? I mean, you get that, right? I mean, you ever had, you ever, you ever had somebody be really nice to you and then it turns out they were only be nice to you because they wanted something from you. You've had this happen, right? My wife and I, early in our marriage, we didn't have any money like most newlyweds, but we really wanted to go on vacation. So we took one of those too good to be true offers where you could go down to one of those timeshare places and they give you like three days at the beach. All you do is sit through this little presentation, right? And you think it's too good to be true. It is too good to be true. So you get down there and I'm telling you, when we got down there, they were so nice to us. I mean, oh, Mr. Greer, we've been waiting for you to come. We have your room prepared. Do you like dark chocolate or do you like milk chocolate? Oh, your wife is so lovely. It's just, hey, how can we take care of you? Do we, how do you like your towels full? I mean, just everything was just waiting. We felt like kings and queens. Then we go to this little presentation, right? They go into the presentation and man, we sit there and I was like, I mean, for an hour, I kept telling the guy, I'm like, man, I, I'm not hiding anything from you. I promise, I ain't got no money. I got no money. You can't milk this turnip. I, I couldn't do this if I wanted to. It took me an hour to convince the guy that I was telling the truth. And eventually when it finally, I could see it when it clicked that I really did not have any money. I mean, it was like somebody flipped a switch and I do. He just stands up from the thing. He's like, whoa, I think your checkout time was 30 minutes ago. We, our staff's already taken your stuff and dumped it out on the lawn. And here's a couple of trash bags for you to get it. You got 30 minutes to be off our property, right? It was apparent, maybe it wasn't that bad, but you know, it was, it was apparent that all this hospitality was not because they liked us at all. It was because they wanted something from us. They wanted us to sign a contract. So if we are doing good to get something from God, whether that's blessing or eternal life or whatever, that's an inherently selfish motive and it's not really good. A deed is only good in God's eyes if it's motivated purely by love for God and others with no self-interest at all. The second reason that our good deeds are really not good and Paul could say there's nobody good is, is, is that apart from faith, listen, even our good deeds aren't good because in light of our biggest sin, our biggest sin, which is cosmic treason, replacing God's authority in our lives with our own, in light of that, any good thing we do doesn't really seem that good. Let me, let me illustrate this by means of an analogy. Say you got a guy who's committing an affair or having an affair on his wife. And so as he is going into the hotel with this other woman to betray his wife, to sin against his children, to destroy his family, as he's going into this hotel, he, he generously tips the bellhop. Now that's a good deed, right? That's a genuinely good, he's generous to the bellhop. That's a good deed. But it's hard to call that deed good in light of the overall wickedness of what he is doing to his wife and his family. You follow that? What if our rebellion against God was like that, but a billion times worse? What if even throwing yourself on a grenade for somebody else in light of your cosmic treason against God, in light of your rebellion, in light of the fact that we don't wanna worship and serve God, what if that was just like tipping the bellhop? In light of our posture of cosmic treason, it's hard to even call our goodness good. There is none good, he says, not even one. You say, well, no, but, but, but Oprah said I was beautiful and special and precious. Yes, you are. You are beautiful and special and precious. And that's part of the paradox of the human race. You are a beautiful person made in the image of God. You are, and you are special and precious, but you have been ruined by sin. And the ruin of that sin is greater than the loveliness of your creation. Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan theologian, the slightest sin has an infinite amount of hatefulness in it. 
enough to outweigh whatever loveliness the creature possessed. Or Blaise Pascal, who you know is one of my favorite philosophers. What a contradiction man is. On the one hand, judge of all things. On the other, a stupid earthworm. A depository of truth and a heap of error. The glory and the refuse of the universe. I'm waiting for this to come out on a Hallmark card because I'm gonna buy it for everybody that I know. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Everybody look at your neighbor right now and say, he's talking about you. He's talking about you. And he's talking about you. Okay, he's talking about all of us. Y'all, the place that our corruption most reveals itself, listen, it's probably in our words. Jesus said that our words uttered in private are the best indicators of what is actually going on in our hearts. So how about this church person? Why don't you consider your speech just from the last week? What you've said to yourself and to your family and to your close friends. And why don't you see if those words are not filled with gossip and impurity and slander and anger and boasting and half truths. Our words carry about the stench of death that comes from that open grave we call our heart. Like, well, I'm just supposed to follow my heart. You should not follow your heart. You follow it into the grave is where it'll take you. Jesus said that by our words alone, we will be condemned. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. The path of peace they have not known. You're like, all right, finally, one that doesn't apply to me. I mean, I've never been part of a murder troop. The point is that we all have a natural reaction to get violent when people get in the way of what we want, right? I mean, as long as we got what we want, we're peaceable, but let somebody else get what we want. Let them take the promotion. Let them get the recognition. Let them get the boyfriend that you feel like you deserve. Let their kid get the honors that you want for your kid. And you don't respond with excitement and gratefulness for them. You don't respond with contentment and the blessings God has given you and trust in his good plan for your life. No, you struggle with hating that person. You struggle with hating that woman. You struggle with with despising that man and wishing harm on him. That's why your ears perk up when you hear somebody point out something bad they've done or criticizing them because you love to hear those who are your competitors criticized. That's all what he's talking about right there. Finally, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That just kind of sums it all up. We don't recognize God's size and his goodness or importance in our lives. When he says there's no fear of God before our eyes, what he means is that God and his authority are just not that big of a deal to us. We may recognize that it's out there, but what's a really big deal to us, what's important, what dominates our thinking is our needs, our desires, and our agendas. That is what the big thing is in in our heart. This, ladies and gentlemen, is what Paul says is the description of your heart from your Hebrew Bible. So verse 20, is it any surprise that nobody will be justified in his sight by the works of the law? (laughs) It's only the knowledge of sin that can come through the law. The purpose of the law, Paul says, is not to correct sin. The purpose of the law is to reveal sin. The law was supposed to function like a mirror that just reveals to us how sinful we are. By looking into the mirror of the law, I'm supposed to see the shape of what my heart is supposed to look like and then be dismayed on what my heart actually is like. I'm supposed to read, for example, commandment nine, thou shalt not lie. 
And I'm supposed to realize that my heart should love truth so much that I would never be tempted to bend truth or twist it to gain personal advantage. I'm supposed to look at commandment seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's supposed to show me that I should love purity so much that I would never dream of, 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 of committing some kind of sexual act with somebody who's not married to me because I'd love purity more than I love any kind of sexual urge. And I would just wanna do things God's way. Commandment number 10, thou shalt not covet. That shows me that I'm supposed to be so satisfied with God, so trusting of his plan in my life that I don't get jealous when somebody else has something that I think that I want. But I don't know about y'all, but I read just those three commands and I think, well, my heart isn't like that. My heart's not like that at all. That's what Paul means when he says, it is the knowledge of sin in your heart. That's what the law's purpose is. It is to reveal to you. It is to make you know the sin that's in your heart. The law just shows us how messed up and spiritually rotten our heart is. I've heard it described before like an x-ray. It's like, it's like an x-ray. Um, a friend of mine, he said that uh, he said his, uh, kid, his daughter went to a birthday party at one of those, um, we hate kids and want to see them die trampoline warehouses. You know, where you send them to, to jump for a while. And he said that, um, he said, my daughter, who's normally very tough, comes up and she's got fighting back tears. And she's like, she's like, dad, I heard something pop when I landed uh, on, my, on my shoulder. And says, so we you know, could tell something was wrong. We took her to the, um, to the emergency room. We got her x-rayed, he said, and sure enough, she popped her arm out of socket and we're gonna have to do all this stuff to, to get it, you know, everything taken care of. He says, you know what was, was amazing though, is he says, that x-ray, I saw the price of that x-ray. That x-ray was absurdly expensive and it didn't fix anything. All it did was show the problem, right? You think paying that much money, it would fix it, but you gotta do something else to fix the problem. The law is like the x-ray, that's all it is. It's the x-ray that shows you how spiritually broken and out of line your heart actually is, but it is powerless to fix it. And just forcing yourself to act righteous doesn't change your heart. Man, if anything, forcing yourself to act righteous just covers up the corruption. I mean, you ever see that, like, you ever see that, that Tupperware container at the back of your refrigerator? And you're like, how long has that been in there? Right, where did that come from? And so you take it out and you, you open it up to see what's in there. And then like four hours later, they have to revive you because you know the moldy chicken or the barbecue has got stuff growing on it, you know, whatever. When that happens, do any of you say like, well, you know what we need is some good stout barbecue sauce. Enough barbecue sauce, we cover up the taste of that rotten meat and that thing's gonna be just fine, right? Nobody says that, right? Except for a group of probably a dozen Chapel Hill guys right now are like, what's wrong with that? You know, that's kind of how we roll. Most of us don't do that because you don't want to cover up the corruption. You got to get rid of the corruption and covering it up doesn't change the fact that it's corrupt. All the law does is it sweetens up your behavior without actually changing your heart. God wants us to be, God created us to be so naturally righteous in our hearts that we wouldn't need a law to do what was right. We would instinctively do what was right because we desired to do what was right. I don't need a law to do the things that I love. You never have to command me to eat dessert. Never. I don't need any commands. I just do that instinctively. You never have to command me to take a nap. Never have to command me to kiss my wife. I love to do those things so there is no law required. The only time the law is required for me is when my heart wants to go the wrong direction. Growing up, my granddad used to have pigs. I go up and, you know, when I spend time with him, he'd go take me out with him to go slop the pigs is what he always called it. 
Slot the pig. Now, nobody ever showed me a recipe for slot. I don't think there is an official recipe because it's basically just like trash and rotten food and the stuff that was in the Tupperware container in the back of the thing. You put all that in this big bucket and it, I mean, it's the nastiest smelling stuff you could imagine. But man, those pigs, they love it. And we carry it out there and carry it out there. And sometimes, remember, he'd have to put it down and go get something from the barn. Not one time did he ever have to say to me, now, JD, you are not allowed to eat that slop. He didn't have to say, I wouldn't touch it. If he told me to touch it, I wouldn't do it. Now, those pigs, though, I mean, they're behind the fence, but they can smell it. And they're pawing the ground and they're trying to get at it because they love it. That fence is required to keep them from doing the thing that they love. But because I naturally hate it, you don't have to have any restraint between me and that because I wouldn't choose it even if I had the opportunity. God doesn't want spiritual pigs in heaven who only avoid the slop of sin because they're afraid of what God will do to them if they do. God wants people in heaven who love righteousness and find the slop of sin disgusting. And so they wouldn't do sin even if they had the opportunity. They don't need a law to do that. It's in their nature. It's why we say that God is not just after obedience. God is after a whole new kind of obedience, an obedience that grows from desire. An obedience where you do righteousness because you crave righteousness, where you seek God because you love God. That is what the gospel is trying to produce. Listen, you understand that sin is not so much an action as it is a condition. Many people only think of sin as bad actions that we do, stealing and lying. But Paul's analysis here is much more devastating. The sin that we commit is because of the heart that we possess Look at the words he uses in chapter three. They're much more about the heart condition than they are the life action. He says that your throat, your hearts are open graves. You're filled with vipers venom. You have mouths full of cursing and bitterness. Those actions we do are merely symptomatic of our hearts. It's like being sick, right? You're not sick because you show symptoms. You show symptoms because you're sick. You don't have the flu because you cough and sneeze and run a fever. You cough and sneeze and run a fever because you have the flu. In the same way, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And what we say and do with our mouths and do with our hands is just a symptom of the rottenness of our hearts, which is why religion cannot fix us. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested to all along by the law and the prophets. This, Tim Keller says, that word but is one of the biggest transitions in the whole Bible. God is going to change us. God is going to make us righteous. But it's not going to be by the commands of the law. No, no, no. It's the righteousness of God. It's through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. We're not going to be made righteous by doing anything. We're going to be made righteous by something God did for us and by believing that Jesus kept the law in our place, living the life we were supposed to live, dying the death we were condemned to die in our place. Believing this, Paul says, connects you to the power of God. It is the power of God into salvation because in it, he said, the righteousness of God was revealed I told you the greatest thing about that righteousness was that God's righteousness is not a standard that we have to obtain that he will one day hold as our standard and judge us by. The righteousness of God in Romans is a gracious gift that God gives to all those who believe and trust that Jesus did it in their place. And when they believe that God implants in their heart resurrection life that begins to transform them into his image. And that is available to all people, Paul says, Greek, Jew, Gentile, religious, irreligious, young, old, black, white, rich, poor, bad sinner, religious sinner. They're all alike. They're just sinners. 
and they're going to believe that if Jesus died in their place and, and rose from the dead, then he can give them righteousness based on his record and he can give them resurrection power based on his resurrection. And then he turns to the Jews and he says, hey, hey, this was attested to the whole time by the law and the prophets. Go back and read your Bible. This is not something new I'm introducing. This is what God was trying to say through the whole Old Testament. Right, Jewish people, he would say? I mean, it was what God was saying, for example, through Abraham, when God told Abraham to sacrifice his son. But at the last minute, God revealed that there was this ram caught in the thicket and the ram was offered in sacrifice instead of Isaac. See, that ram, that ram was like Jesus who would one day be slain on the altar for you so that you could walk free. It, what, what God was trying to show you through the Passover when they had to take a lamb and kill the lamb and put the blood on the, the doorpost of their house so the death angel would pass over. See, that was a picture of what Jesus was gonna do when he came as the Passover lamb. He was gonna shed his blood so that when his blood was put on the doorpost of your heart, God's death angel, his death sentence would pass over you. It's what God was trying to show them in the wilderness when he told Moses, Moses to strike the rock so that water would come out and it would slake their thirst in the midst of this wilderness. See, that was a picture of how one day you would wander in the wilderness of sin and God would strike Jesus with his wrath and out of his broken body and resurrection would come eternal living water that would satisfy your soul and cleanse you forever. It's what God was trying to show through David. When, when, when King David um, ran out onto the field all by himself to slay Goliath, while the armies of Israel sat cowering in fear on the sidelines, unable to help, that was a picture of what Jesus would do one day. Because see, he was gonna come and he was gonna be this unassuming warrior who would slay the real giant, which was sin and death, while we, you and I, stood on the sideline, unable even to lift a finger to help him. It was what God was trying to say through Isaiah when he talked about a suffering servant who would come, who would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. It was what Hosea was trying to give you a picture of when he was this ever faithful husband pursuing his ever unfaithful bride. That was gonna be Jesus who was gonna come after you. And even when you put him on a cross, he was still gonna say, Father, forgive them. You don't know what you're doing. Hey, this is not something new I'm, I'm introducing to you. This is something that God told 3,000 years ago through all these different authors, there's been one message and that is you can't save yourself. God's gotta do it. That's why Jesus's name in Hebrew is literally Yahshua, God is salvation. The salvation you're looking for is not found in the law. It's not found through your effort. It's not found in religion. It's found in God alone. So blessed is the person who has made God his refuge and his strength. That's not just talking about crises that you have in parenting. God is your refuge and strength begins with salvation. I can't save myself. I can't make my heart new. I can't earn my place before God. God has to do it. And God did it in my place. He lived the life I was supposed to live, died the death I was condemned to die. And all I could do was receive it as a gift. And through faith, through faith, I was made righteous. Through faith, I was made alive. Through faith, I was made his. Through faith, I am made new. Here's the question. Have you ever received Jesus as your savior? Have you ever exercised that faith that Paul is talking about here in the book of Romans? Because see, to receive him, listen, the biggest obstacle for people to receive him, you gotta admit the problem. You gotta be honest about the messed up state of your heart. You gotta be honest that your heart is broken beyond repair. You gotta be honest that the sentence of death is over you and rightfully so. You've got to admit that you are condemned and in need of grace. But see all that is one the one thing that most people will not do. That's why Billy Graham used to say, what sends most people to hell is not their sins. What sends most people to hell is their good works. 
Nothing stands anymore between you and God but your good works. Nothing can keep you from Christ but delusion about your goodness. From the delusion of thinking that you got good works of your own that can satisfy God. No friend to come to Christ, all you need is need. All you must have is nothing. But most sinners cannot part with their virtues, their goodness, which is why a sense of goodness sends more people to hell than sin does. He came into his own. He came to the religious Jews and his own would not receive him because they didn't recognize their need. But as many as received him, John 1, 12, to them, to them, Jew or Gentile, to those who received him, to those who recognized how badly they needed the savior. It was to them he gave the power to become the children of God. Even to those who believe on his name, they were born out of the will of flesh, not of blood, not of the will of man. They were born of God because God is the author of salvation. Have you received the offer that he has for you? It's gotta be taken with humility, but it's there for you if you want it. Why don't you bow your heads if you would at all of our campuses. I'm talking about a personal, a personal moment with Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about getting religious. I'm not talking about growing up in church or confirmation class or baptism or walking an aisle or signing a card. I'm talking about you opening up your life to Jesus. The Bible says it requires two things. They're really the same thing, but from two different angles, repentance and faith. Repentance means you recognize that Jesus is Lord, not you. And from now on, you'll follow his way, not yours. Faith means you recognize that you couldn't save yourself, so Jesus did it in your place. And you believe that he did what he said he did when he died and rose again. If you have never received Jesus personally, you could do it right now at all of our campuses. You could do it right now through our podcast, through those of you that are live streaming. You do it right now by saying to Jesus something like this. You can even use these words if they come from your heart. Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I surrender my life to you right now fully and completely. Say it to him, I surrender to you right now, fully and completely. And Jesus, I believe you died in my place. I receive your offer to save me. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm gonna ask you to do what you did last week. I'm gonna ask you to acknowledge that right now. I want you to slip up your hand right now and say today, this weekend, I prayed that prayer for the first time or first time I understood it. I pray that prayer. I'm receiving Jesus as my Savior. Just hold your hand up. Hold your hand up real high. Don't be embarrassed whether I can see you or not. Keep your hands up for just a second. Father, I pray for every hand that is raised right now. God, I know that you brought them here for a purpose, and I know that you've got a whole plan for their life, so give them the courage to follow this onward into full discipleship. Thank you, God, for bringing them here and for extending salvation. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen. You can put your hands down. Everybody look up here at me for a minute, okay? I'm gonna ask you what I did last week. If you were one of the ones that prayed that prayer, raise your hand. I want you to tell the person who brought you. That's all I ask that you do. Tell the person that invited you that, that you prayed that prayer with me. Hey, like I told you last week, newsflash, they already know, okay? Because when I told everybody to bow their head and close their eyes, they weren't, they were looking at you the whole time. So they saw it. So just go ahead and acknowledge the elephant in the room and be like, I prayed a prayer. And they're like, I know, I saw. And then y'all can have a great lunch and talk about it. Okay, so everybody, I want you to do that. If you didn't come with somebody, we're gonna have pastors up here at the end of every service. We'd love to talk to you. Maybe you've grown up in church and you're just embarrassed. You're like, I just got it, but I'm embarrassed. What are, is everybody gonna think? Don't worry about that. 
just come and let us know because we wanna, we wanna show you what God wants you to do from here on, okay? I want everybody at all campuses to stand to their feet, stand to your feet. Hallelujah, what a savior. Hallelujah, what a savior. Those of us who know him, we can just rejoice, bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior.